It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 344, April 28, 2013. This week, some email programs are versatile, others are usable. After more than a decade, I've switched from versatility to usability. Facebook continues to be a place where scams are rampant. In short circuits, an alarming improvement in malware-laden spam. Twitter needs to establish a security perimeter. And another magazine heads for online only. If you've been following TechBiter Worldwide and before that Technology Corner on WTVN Radio, you've heard me talk about the BAT many times. It's probably the world's most versatile email application capable of doing just about anything. And you've heard me scoff at Microsoft Outlook more than once, so you might be more than slightly surprised to learn that I'm now using Outlook 2013 instead of the BAT. There is, of course, a story behind this. Well before 2000, I had tried version 1 of the BAT and concluded that it was a promising application, but that it needed more work, and I continued using Eudora. In May of 2000, I wrote that I had rediscovered the BAT, by then it was version 2, and that I strongly recommended it. That's been the story with version 3, version 4, and version 5. But recently, the frustration caused by a seemingly small bug became so significant that I went looking for an email program for the first time in 13 years. And what I found was surprising. Apparently, state-of-the-art for most email applications was frozen in time around 2003. This is understandable because most email programs are now free open source, for example, such as Thunderbird or Pegasus, or their no extra charge included with something else, like Outlook, for example. The BAT is one of the few email programs that's not free, but it is inexpensive. And I found a program called Postbox, based on Thunderbird code, that is really pretty cheap. But minor issues became the deciding factor. Back in the early 1980s, Jack Fitzgerald was the program director at WTVN Radio. At a staff meeting one day, he talked about the importance of sweating the small stuff. The concept was easy enough to grasp. In any competitive activity, the factor that decides the winner is often small and overlooked. This could be an Olympic event in which the difference between first place and 20th place is less than half a second. A football game that might be decided by a distance of a few inches. Or a radio station that might lose ratings by making what seemed to be a small change. Fitzgerald's message was that most of the major players in any endeavor do all the big things right, and that what differentiates them are the smaller things. The least important consideration suddenly becomes the most important consideration. And so, in the end, that's what happened in the decision between the BAT and Outlook. Several months ago, the BAT developed an annoying habit of converting all of my text to nine-point courier in replies to messages as soon as I pressed the enter key. 
This rarely occurred in new messages, but sometimes replies were converted, or even worse, partially converted, to nine-point courier before I typed anything. Most disconcerting were the instances in which part of my signature block were converted to courier, while the rest was left alone. My choices were to send the ugly message, that's what I did when I was in a hurry, or to select the entire message, change the typeface, change the type size, and then, because of a second bug, I had to actually do that all again, change the face and the size. I reported the problem to RIT Labs, and RIT Labs indicated it was a known bug. Now, if something was actually being done to correct the problem, I'd wait. But that seemed, and seems, not to be the case. So, I spent one weekend looking at various email applications, and most of them seemed to be stuck in the early 2000s. The interface had distinct turn-of-the-century appearances, and the feature set hadn't changed a lot. Mozilla's Thunderbird and Postbox, based on Thunderbird, looked promising, but Thunderbird still has too many bugs and deficiencies, and Postbox retained all of those problems from Thunderbird and added some of its own. I looked at Dream Mail, I looked at Mulberry, I looked at Fox Mail, I looked at Alpine. <laughs> Alpine, yeah, it looks like something from the 1980s. And I looked at a few others. Some were on the computer for less than 10 minutes. Others survived fairly minimal testing, and then I deleted them. So finally, I looked at Outlook. The appearance is certainly modern, but getting it set up was almost a showstopper. By default, Outlook wants to place its data files on drive C, but I'm not about to waste valuable solid-state disk drive with email. More than an hour later, and after numerous Google queries, I finally managed to convince Outlook to place its files on drive D. One of the most powerful features that the bat has to offer is its ability to filter messages on various combinations of conditions. Outlook has message filtering too, but it's not nearly as robust as the bat's. Still, after working with the filters for an afternoon, I concluded that the capability is good enough. No method exists by which I can import the BAT's filters into Outlook, and believe me, I looked. I have written a lot of filters for the BAT, and rewriting all of them for Outlook isn't something I'm looking forward to. Doing so, however, might result in a better series of filters. After all, I would hope that I have a better idea of what I'm doing than I did back in 2002. And initially, I thought there was going to be no way to move messages from the BAT to Outlook. Both programs have their own proprietary file formats. The BAT doesn't have an output to Outlook format option, and Outlook doesn't have an import from the BAT option. So I had resigned myself to keeping the BAT on the computer to review old messages, much as I had retained Eudora when I started using the BAT. But that turned out to be not necessary. I found aid for mail from Fuchs Software in Switzerland. I could have bought a $20 two-week license, but decided that I might continue to find messages that would need to be migrated for the next year or so. So for 30 bucks, I acquired a one-year license to that application. This is a remarkable program that allows the buyer to switch from nearly any email application to nearly any other email application. If you're thinking about switching email programs, you're going to want to take a look at Aid for Mail because it can accept files from a huge array of applications and write output formats in another huge list of formats. I'm not going to list the whole group. You'll find the list on the TechBiter Worldwide website. 
and you'll also find a link to Aid for Mail at Fuchs Software. The bat's ability to replace a single keyword with paragraphs or even pages of text has been an important feature since 2000 when I discovered it. Plugins exist to extend this kind of capability to Outlook, but I already use Macro Express, and the latest version of Macro Express allows it to paste in formatted text, so I'm covered there. I like the bat's ability to display the entire contents of a message from headers all the way through multiple parts of a multi-part message, and doing that with a single keystroke, F9. Outlook has nothing to compare. It is possible to view the headers, but to do so, it's necessary to open the message, not just have it open in the preview window, and then you have to drill down through multiple levels and peek through what is effectively a keyhole that shows only the headers. It's better than nothing, but you'd think Microsoft could do better. A Microsoft TechNet blogger suggested that it's possible to view the full text through that keyhole, but it requires a registry modification. Beyond that, the registry modification post was written in 2004, and it applied to Outlook 2003. I could find no similar references for versions 2007, 2010, or 2013. And when I modified the key to address the analogous section of Outlook 2013, well, there was still no change. So apparently the best Microsoft can do is to show the routing headers, and then only with some difficulty. Overall, though, it's okay. Outlook is no longer the security threat that it was a dozen years ago. It is still the largest and therefore the most attractive target. It doesn't offer features that I'll miss, but it also doesn't include several annoyances that I won't miss. Outlook alone is capable of performing all the critical email tasks that I need to do, and the judicious use of other applications and some add-ons will make it possible for Outlook to perform some tricks that I can't manage natively. Outlook's direct connection to calendar and organizer functions, plus the richly featured built-in contact function are all welcome, as is the connection to OneNote and Outlook's own built-in Notes feature. But that's not to say that I won't miss the bat. I will. But progress has been slow, and there's no indication that anything is going to change anytime soon. So without batting an eye, I guess I have to say the outlook is bright. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Type one in comments and see what happens. Posts like that make me want to put on my best Lewis Black attitude and say something like this. Nothing will happen, you moron! Do you have any idea how Facebook works? If you did, you'd know that typing one won't make anything happen. But you know that, don't you? Because something will happen. The idiots who follow your advice will make money for you. Okay, so what do you think of my Lewis Black impersonation? Was it surly enough? You know the old saying about surly to bed, surly to rise, and all that, don't you? So how does this work? Maybe you've seen the post that features my sister Mallory, in which someone claims that his or her sister, Mallory, has Down syndrome and doesn't think she's beautiful. It asks visitors and viewers to click the like option to show her that she is. Who could resist? And what could be the harm? 
Well, harm number one, the picture is that of a girl from Australia. It had been stolen and used without the knowledge of the girl or the girl's family. In other words, the poster was not the girl's sister. And harm number two, clicking like is putting money into some creep's pocket. Here's how the scam works. The creep creates a page. Easy, takes maybe five minutes to set up. The page is then used to share images such as that of Mallory, or maybe a kid who says his parents will buy him something special if he gets a million likes in the next week or so. Well, internet rubes click to visit the page, like it, and share the image. And within a few days, this fake Facebook site has 50,000 likes, maybe 100,000. And then the creep goes for the payoff. The page will be peddled to some less-than-ethical business that wants a ready-made page with 50,000 or 100,000 followers. Oh, by the way, the Brooklyn Bridge, it's not for sale either. Likes, shares, and comments all contribute to what Facebook calls a page's edge rank. Higher ratings mean the page will be included in more feeds. If you see too much garbage in your feed, that's because people who don't know any better have reacted to all these fake posts. The only way to make them go away is to ignore them. Or better still, report them to Facebook. If enough people report fraudulent pages, Facebook will take the page down. So, how big is this problem? Well, Facebook admits to having a lot of fake users. 83 million of them, in fact. Some of these have been created by creeps such as the one that put up the fake Mallory page. Some people have even reported that their own pages have been copied by people who represent themselves as the person whose information they've stolen. Really, it's not all that hard to identify fraudulent messages. Maybe you see an image that says, Get a free $500 gift card from Whole Foods. Do you really think that Whole Foods is going to give a $500 gift card to anybody who likes this fake link? American Airlines isn't giving away flights either. Neither is any other airline for that matter. And I saw one recently that said they have thousands of unsealed iPhone 5s that can't be sold, so they're giving them away. Well, nobody has thousands of unsealed iPhones that they can't sell. If an electronic device of any sort fails or is returned for any reason, it's going to be sold by an organization such as Woot, for example. There is a huge market for refurbished goods, and they are not given away because they can't be sold. I saw one from a site called Waiting for You to Text Me. Name a color without the letter E in it, it said. What kind of a nut would follow that? Well, apparently 71,000 people already have. So obviously a fool is not born every minute. It happens a lot more frequently than that. And Bill Gates, uh -uh, he's not giving you $5,000 for clicking his link. If you want to like, comment, or share... Pick a worthwhile organization. For example, I share a lot of images from the Columbus Zoo. Columbus and San Diego are two of the best zoos in the nation. Fortunately, I live within easy driving distance of the one in Columbus, so I frequently share posts from there. Oh, and by the way, have you heard? They took gullible out of the dictionary.
In short circuits, there has been an alarming improvement in malware-laden spam. Almost overnight, the quality of teaser spams has improved dramatically. You're probably familiar with messages that claim to be from someone you know and include nothing more than a website URL. Most people don't send messages like that, and many of us have figured that out already. Instead, most people send messages that say something about the link, but now the bad guys have figured out how to do that. Take a look on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a message that claims to be from my wife. There are three obvious indications that the message is not from her. First of all, she doesn't have an AOL email address. Second, it's unlikely that she would use even three exclamation points. She is an English major, after all, with a master's in English. Unlikely that she would use three exclamation points in her own, certainly not ten. Third, as best as I can remember, she has never closed an email message to me with the term best regards and her full name. Oh, and there's also this. The message was written at 2.44 p.m. on a Sunday, but I received it at 1.50 p.m., so, unless she found a way to write the message at some time in the future and send it back to me in the past, it's not from her. And one other clue? At the time she was out shopping, and her phone doesn't send email? The message claimed to be from AOL, and the associated IP address was 64.12.81.148. That is indeed AOL. So I wondered what this game was, so I used a Windows PowerShell procedure to load the target website into a variable so that I could view the variable without causing my computer any harm. And what I found was a simple redirect. It would simply take my browser elsewhere. Pretty much what I expected. When I used the same PowerShell procedure to load the redirect site, well, Avast decided to block it because there was malicious software involved. Also, no big surprise. It's increasingly important that we all confirm that the claimed sender of a message is the actual sender of the message, and that any links in a message we receive have been sent intentionally by the person we know. In most cases, a careful reading of any message, along with an inspection of the email address, the signature, and other parts of the message, should serve to identify malware-laden messages. But if you're not certain, there's nothing wrong with asking the apparent sender if the message is legitimate. A fake Twitter post this week claiming to be from the Associated Press said there'd been an explosion at the White House, two actually, and that the president had been injured. There had of course been no explosion, much less two, the president had not been injured, but for a few minutes, the stock market wasn't aware of that. And in the next few minutes, automated trading routines dumped $134 billion worth of stock. So the computers that run Wall Street are just as gullible as human investors. And the trouble is that those computers that do the trading do so with astonishing speed. The markets did recover quickly, but the incident once again highlighted the dangers of allowing computers to do all the heavy lifting. Before massive trades are completed solely by computers, maybe it might be a good idea to have a little bit of human oversight. Twitter's security procedures are among the weakest on the internet, and the incident also highlights the need for organizations such as Twitter to establish more robust controls. 
A group that calls itself the Syrian Electronic Army claims that it hijacked the account and posted the fake message. The FBI is investigating because that single tweet and the misinformed trading that followed it caused the Dow to drop by more than 140 points, or about 1%, in two minutes. Speed may be good, but accuracy is almost always better. Vibe isn't Newsweek. In fact, it's likely that most people who read TechBiter worldwide or listen to the podcast have never heard of Vibe. Spin Media has purchased Vibe, which has been around for more than two decades, and it's likely to drop the print edition in favor of a web-based magazine. Vibe's topic is R&B and hip-hop music. This week, Spin Media bought the rights to the magazine and to the websites Vibe.com and VibeVixen.com. In many ways, this is old home week because Vibe and Spin Ventures were once part of the same company. Spin Media used to be called Buzz Media, and it already owns or works with a lot of popular sites that attract younger visitors who are interested in music and other aspects of pop culture. Why is Vibe's future likely to be digital only? Well, Buzz Media bought Spin a little less than a year ago, and before you could say 45 RPM, assuming you would say 45 RPM, If you would, before you could say that, Spin stopped being a print publication. Buzz, as in Buzz Saw, dropped about one-third of the publication's staff, but said the publication might be back someday. Since then, website traffic has increased substantially. No print, though. Check out the history. Quincy Jones and Time Warner worked together to develop Vibe as a magazine back when the Internet was still far from ubiquitous and the web hadn't even been invented yet. 1992. Advertising revenue dropped following the Great Recession that started in 2008, and the magazine shut down in 2009. Private investors brought it back almost immediately. At the end of its print life, Vibe sold about 300,000 issues per month. Vibe's sites, on the other hand, see about 1.4 million visitors every month. So you see where the future lies. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.